Hello and welcome to this, the 39th episode in this second series of the Rise Productions Irish Theatre Podcast. I am your host, the self-appointed cheerleader-in-chief of Irish Theatre, Angus Ogue McAnally, Artistic Director of Rise Productions, a freelance actor, more recently a director and a producer here at Rise. I am a 21-year veteran of the Irish theatre scene and a third-generation theatre maker. And as ever, we are coming to you live from our studios at the Irish Theatre Institute in the heart of Dublin's cultural quarter of Temple Bar. And this second series is, of course, brought to you thanks to the very generous support of the Arts Council of Ireland. Now, each week we bring you these conversations absolutely free of charge. We've promised we won't ever charge for the podcast, but we are looking for you to put your money into Irish theatre. That's the whole ethos behind this podcast, to support, promote and celebrate all that is great about Irish theatre. And the simplest way to do that is to go and buy yourself some theatre tickets. There's a whole host of theatre coming up soon. we got Fringe coming at us. We've We've got the Dublin Theatre Festival coming at us. All those tickets are on sale at the moment. Go out there, get out there and support them. But also there's a whole heap of work going on around Dublin and around the country as we speak. Get out there and support your local theatre. You get to put your money into Irish theatre and in return you get to get a great night out. What's not to like? But you know what? If tickets are slightly outside your reach this week or this month, there are a number of ways you can support without even having to put your hand in your pocket. Go and tell people about this podcast, whether that's in person or over a cup of coffee or a pint. The more you tell people about us, the more we can use that platform to tell everyone about the great theatre artists we're having these conversations with. Uh, Of course, you can always go and share the link as a Facebook post or retweet the link on Twitter. Do please subscribe uh, to the podcast over on iTunes, but of course, it is streamable and available for direct download over at riseproductions.ie and all you Android users it's available on Podbean it's available on Acast all those other podcasting platforms anywhere you get your podcast you're going to find the Rise Productions Irish Theatre podcast so go out there and spread the word do go back and listen to all our other episodes both in the first series and in the second series leave us a review on iTunes if you would or simply click to rate us on their five star rating system you can follow us on Facebook we are facebook.com forward slash Rise Productions Ireland or you can follow us on Twitter Twitter, we are at Rise Ireland. And so that brings us to our guest this week, who is none other than the brilliant Katrina McLaughlin, a director who's been making serious waves for quite some time, but it really feels that at the moment she's really captured onto something with the work that she's making, and there is a massive, massive buzz about this lady, and entirely deservedly so. This is one of my favourite chats we've had, not only through this second series, but through the entire podcast project. Just such an inspirational woman. Let's get straight into it, guys. Here she is, the brilliant Katrina McLaughlin. The wonderful Katrina McLaughlin joining me on the podcast. How the hell are you? Very good. Thanks very much. Excellent. I'm so delighted to have you on. Let's begin with the most important question of all. Why is Moville such a fantastic and magical place? <laughs> I have no idea. I'm from Carindona. <laughs> so it couldn't possibly be. No, it's... Uh, are you talking about foil punt? Yes, I am. Oh, it's such a, it was lovely. Actually, the punt itself was made in Greencastle. Okay. But it's... It, there's something... There is something really beautiful beautiful about it up there the way the light is so changeable it's so far north that whole area the way the water and the sky meet each other it's kind of beautiful magical place and we you're talking about the show we made which was about um a boat builder who's been in Moville for seven generations or rather his family has and he is the last of the line he and his brother and his cousin so we made a show there last month where he and his brother built a boat, a foil punt, which is a beautiful handmade wooden clinker sailing vessel. Yeah. But it used to be a sort of staple of the fishing industry up there. 
and it's based on Viking lines and it's a gorgeous looking thing. So basically the show was he built the boat, he talked about his family and his history and the tradition of boat building up in that area and the fishing industry and we juxtaposed it with some music by little Johnny. Do you know little Johnny? Of course, yeah. Oh my God, he's brilliant. And the fabulous Farah El, a Libyan singer. And it was Russia Goen's new company, The Local Group. So we were working with Leon Bell and Jenny Moran. And it was just one of those really magical experiences. And the show seemed to appeal to people. And very special summer I had up yeah, there. It, seem, it seems like it was a hell of a guy. Obviously, any show that's dealing with people from Aville and multiple generations <laughs> in the same family business is going to make me very happy. But of look, course. Let, yeah, let, of course. Let's get back. I totally <laughs> forgot that, Angus. I just, I just realised yeah, why you are so interested in as well. That's quite all right. I no, should have been saying uh, something about the DNA. Huh? <laughs> Maybe sorry, we're cousins. I, quite possibly. Yeah, quite possibly. my grand is from Aville too. Really? Yeah. Fair, my favourite Moville story is that my great-grandmother, Ray's mother, Winifred, who would have had certain notions about her position in life, given that she was married to the bank manager, <laughs> uh, was, to, like, to her death, very, very disappointed that Ray had gone to the seminary but never became a priest. Whereas um, the butchers across the road had four priests, mm-hmm. and there is no justification. Now, and the, one of those priests not only married my in-laws, married my brother-in-law, married me and my wife, christened all the kids. It's a long family connection to Moville. It's a beautiful thing. Let us get back to your very <laughs> beginning, though. When initially does an interest in theatre start for you, or uh, or even like even before the the idea that you might pursue it as a career? When does just a love for theatre start for you? Do you know what? It actually started in Moville. Of course it did. <laughs> Where all great theatre stories start. Actually, just, just now when I'm thinking about it, because it wouldn't really be theatre, because, the you know, up there, it's so rural, there's not even a theatre. So I would have been a regular at the Moville Fish <laughs> from about the age of five or six, and I loved it. I Apparently, they couldn't stop me from going and learning poetry and performing poetry and apparently I was horrendous. Oh wow. My mom said you couldn't hear me beyond the stage. Okay. But I loved it and eventually got a bit better and was one of those Egypts, you know, that kept going to the fish, way into secondary school performing and went to the fish dura, okay. went to the Cardona fish. But <clears throat> If I'm honest, my sort of interest start in words probably started through poetry. I always loved poetry from about the age of... Mum said even my when I learned to speak, she would um, say rhymes and I would finish them off. Bef- you know, that was how really? I learned to speak. Yeah, when I was very young, I obviously don't remember. But I, I always had something about words and poetry. Okay. Yeah. Is that something now that when you approach a script now, do you look for a kind of a, a poetry or musicality within the words? Is that something that appeals to you a lot? Yeah, it is. And, and even if it's about colloquialisms or about a sort of authenticity to a place, yeah. I, I would very much be drawn to that, yeah. And I, but I, I must admit, I like plays that have a poetic quality in them that, that where, where the characters and the words do more than have a conversation on the surface level. There do you know go. what I mean? Yeah. I like metaphor. <laughs> Which I know is a dirty word in contemporary theatre, but I do like metaphor and suggestion, and I like how a rhythm in language can suggest one thing while the words are suggesting something else. Okay. So, yeah, I've always loved that. 
fantastic. So then, this initial spark of being around poetry and fashion and all this kind of stuff, mm. then when does that progress to an urge to maybe look at it as, as a career? Because you didn't go straight to drama school. No, I didn't. But funny, I always wanted to. Um, I, I had this thing. I remember um, in secondary school, you know, friends of mine, we put up posters. And I remember thinking, I'm not putting up posters. That's the job I'm going to do. <laughs> <laughs> and I had no idea how or where or when. or. But I always had this. I think it came from black and white films and from film, really. I loved films. And I just always wanted to tell stories. And I remember being sent into the sitting room to do my homework and finding my mother's version of um, The Merchant of Venice and trying to read it and not being able to get past the first page. But I always had this kind of draw to the idea of acting. At that point, it was acting, performing. And, you know, I really think it came from being very shy. I was a very shy kid, like cripplingly shy. So to have someone else's words was a gift. You didn't need your own. <laughs> this is something I find fascinating because people talk about it. Uh, actors talk about being shy a lot, and, and people outside the business find that really hard to understand. You talk to someone like Aaron Monaghan, who is a very shy guy and talks about being shy. But there's something. There's an Oscar Wilde quote that says, "Man is least himself when he talks in his own person. Give him a mask, and he'll tell the truth." And I think that security of having someone else's words to hide behind is something that I find a real. Um, security blanket I guess at times I find even a podcast chat like this being me I find very difficult being someone else with four <laughs> weeks rehearsal and someone else's words that I can do all day it's but it, it's weird isn't it it is weird and I think it's true of a lot of people in the arts because the ex- there's a there's a truth in the distance between the self and the expression of the idea do you know what I yeah. mean so you know like even take something like on Raftery's Hill which is a play that is quite challenging in terms of its subject matter. And I think the subject matter, the situation of people living day to day in an incestuous situation is very common, more common than we would like to admit, yeah. particularly in very rural parts of the country. Now, I've no way of talking about that in my real life I've no right to talk about it I have no right to speak on other people's behalf but I can address the subject and the familiarity with it through something like an incredible piece of work like on Raftery's Hill. So then what were your first steps kind of career-wise college-wise it wasn't drama school? No it wasn't it was science uh in fact, I did a degree in biological science and then a postgraduate in biomedical science. That's the real deal. That's not yeah. hanging around messing college. No. That's real college. Yeah, it was. And it was <laughs> it was pretty tough, though. I will say this. I, I, my first day in Coleraine, I went to Coleraine University of Ulster. And my first day, I went in to buy my science books. And the first book I bought was The Empty Space. Really? Yeah, Peter Brooks, The Empty Space. I didn't buy one science book. And I came home and read it cover to cover. I'd always wanted to go to drama school, but there was no um, way of doing any theatre where I, you know, there was no theatre in our school. There wasn't really, there was amateur drama every couple of years in the town. So when I started to broach the subject with my teachers or my parents that I wanted to go and study drama, they thought I was off my head because they had, I, they had no precedent for yeah. it. They, had no, they thought it was coming from nowhere. They thought it was a notion. And in many ways, it was just stories 
coming from stories and wanting to tell stories really through you know watching films or reading books or reading poetry or and not being able to express myself literally probably (laughs) so it came through stories and uh, my parents shall we say persuaded me to do science gently urged gently urged me yeah (laughs) and my careers teachers thought that I was crazy and they insisted that I do science so I applied I remember I applied for you know on the form you could put in 10 yeah um, choices and I remember number 10 I put in drama at Trinity and it was the you know the more academic course yes of course and I came up to do an interview for it and they went they basically said to me well you've got nine biology choices so clearly this is just absurd you have no intention of, of doing drama I remember crying all the way home on the bus. (laughs) That's incredible. But then I picked Coleraine because it had a theatre. That's why I chose, because I got into different places. And when I got there, the students weren't allowed to use the theatre because there had been an accident the year before and somebody had basically broken their back, putting up lights. Yeah, so it was a good reason, but it nearly broke my heart. Uh, The first year was a struggle. I had to repeat many exams with the devastation of realizing I've made a terrible mistake. Wow. But now, so okay, so I know a couple of people who have done that. They've gone they've been talked into going down like get something to fall back on, go for the real job and kind of, you know, they might find third or fourth year they start to veer off. You went on and did a a, a postgrad there as well. I did, yeah. So <clears throat> so if we look at that kind of scientific approach as digging down deep to try and find some truth yeah. of a situation. Are there skills and methodologies and methodologies that you picked up in those years in college that you now apply to tackling a, a, a piece of theatre? I think definitely. Initially, I didn't realise that yeah. there were, but absolutely. I mean, I you know, even simple things like reading, I would read sort of behavioural psychology books or biology books in terms of how things happen or how emotions work or the science of emotions yeah. or the... And, at one point, I was very interested in a way of working based on uh, Stanislavski called the science of acting because it is very methodical in terms of how you break down a text. And so it kind of fitted into that impulse, yeah. or at least I understood how to wor- work with that. You know, it was familiar to me. Um, initially, though, I rejected it wholly. You know, I. I actually not just studied it, went on and took a job as a biochemist in a water executive in Northern Ireland up in Derry. And I was um, basically analysing sewage on that a does daily sound basis. Very so, yeah, so I literally, literally went from shit into science into <laughs> theatre. No, I went in every day and I would have to filter the sewage through these little discs of paper. That was my job. And I was like, I vomited every day for months because the smell was horrendous. So anyway, one day I went in and I'd been there about six months and I looked out on this little bit of paper and there was a tiny florid of broccoli on the paper. And I went, for that to end up on that piece of paper, it's been on some journey. I know the detail of that journey and I never need to see it again. Yeah. So I basically went in and handed in my notice. Wow. And went and volunteered at the Playhouse in Derry. Spectacular. <laughs> I love it. That man, that's just spectacular. That's the moment of my transition. Yeah, that's, that's a real eureka moment. Yeah. 
I know for yeah. some people it's you know sitting in a darkened theater oh. watching you know a great actor work their magic for you it was a slightly different route but I kind of like that yeah. <laughs> um, how important is the playhouse of Derry for me essential I mean it was uh, I went there and Pauline Ross who was the artistic director at the time sent me to Sinead Devine Sinead McSheffrey at the time, she's now Sinead Devine, who is literally responsible for every single person who has come out of Derry, as far as I can make out. Everybody who has been through Derry at some point in their life has come through Sinead Devine. She was an amazing woman. And when I met her, she immediately um, took me under her wing, like taught me, I started to learn. The first thing I learned was using drama as in conflict resolution, working with young people who'd been uh, affected by the conflict, and then older people and people with mixed ability, and prisoners and ex-prisoners and school refusers. So I learned the practicality of drama before I learned any of the art of it, okay. if you know what I mean. Yeah. Which it probably was handy too, coming from the scientific kind of approach, but I spent a lot of time with her ended up working in youth theatre quite a bit and then um, uh, I suppose started my own youth theatre well went to the Gaiety School here a very complicated through a very complicated sort of scenario went to the Gaiety School here and started the youth theatre three months later at weekends perfect but it kind of um, I because I always had this thing because I wanted to do it so badly and because everybody stopped me I was determined that nobody else was going to be in the same position so <laughs> the minute I learned what I was doing I went up there and we had such fun I learned more about theatre up there running that youth theatre yeah. I ran it for years than probably anything else it was like fly by the seat of your pants theatre it's an incredible combination of of people to be working with and scenarios we working with and you know again Derry was a, a kind of a different place at that stage you know yeah. you talking about working with prisoners working with people kind of conflict resolution and stuff yeah. it, again seeing a practical application for theatre and for drama it must have coloured your perception on theatre as well I think I th I'm sure it did you know it's that kind of funny thing when you don't know any different yeah and um, what it did do like I would be working on projects uh, or facilitating projects for young people or you know people from different disciplines and all I wanted to do was professional theatre and I would be reading madly trying to figure out how to apply things I was reading to the most unsuitable circumstances like terrible I mean those poor people when I think about it now that I had miming washing their teeth when really they're dealing with like quite serious issues <laughs> you know when I think about it yeah. I kind of wish I had a, I wish I had a, a phone at that stage to film it the absurdity of it but I learned an awful lot about people and what's important to people and how people feel things and when a feeling is real and I think that's really coloured my taste and performance actually ah now that's intriguing yeah because I like something I like work that comes from like inside out rather than outside in i like work that starts very small and builds very slowly i like working with that kind of actor that yeah. doesn't impose anything until they have enough information to know what they feel or yeah. think or how to act or and i like to layer work and in a way it kind of came from 
stripping people back in order to, you know, using exercises to strip things down or strip people back to see what was actually under the issue that you were being presented with. Yeah. So it's, 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 I suppose it does feed itself in some way. It's absolutely intriguing. Talk to me about going to London and particularly the connection with the Royal Court. <clears throat> well, I went to the Gaiety School and when I came out of the Gaiety School, I started a theatre company with a woman called Sarah Doherty. And we put on some tiny plays for no budget at places like the Andrews Lane Theatre. And yes, indeed. We did um, Low Level Panic and we did translations at the Sam Beckett Centre and things like that. And then somebody came to us, and this was, you know, when there was a lot of money in the country, and somebody came to us and said they would like to produce rent, and they needed a theatre company to produce rent, and could, would we be interested? Now, at this stage, I'd never seen a musical, and Sarah could sing, but I haven't a note. So we decided, good, this will be great, we'll make a profit, and we'll be able to do plays. So, long story short, with um, this guy, Evan McAuliffe, yes, who produced Rent, we put Rent on this company who went from a budget of £2,000 for a production to whatever Rent cost. Um, we put on Rent in the Olympia for nine weeks. Now, let's, <laughs> let's talk about... The, putting Rent on there would be a task. Yeah. Putting Rent on in Dublin in the summer of 2000 yeah. is a different kettle of fish. Ireland was an awful lot more conservative yeah. and there were certainly an awful lot less actors of any colour other than white Catholics yeah. knocking around, basically. Totally. Um, that was a hell of a thing to undertake. And the musical theatre wasn't really a thing, so yeah. the voices weren't even really yeah. that easy to find. Um, but... This guy was passionate about doing rent and he uh, had financial backing and he employed most of the cast from either New York or London and the director from With London. some notable exceptions of the likes of the Emma Kirwins of the world yes, and others. Yes, of course, this is true. that's right. Actually, in fairness now, there was five or six yeah. people locally, I mean, but in terms of getting people of colour uh, or mixed race people, he hired them from either New York or, or London. Out of and, necessity. Oh, completely. Oh, we auditioned here. I say we. I don't want to overstate my case. I had nothing to do with it except I was the assistant director, right. which was forced upon them because it was the only role any of us could do who were actually in the company. And my experience was directing youth theatre. So we insisted that I was the assistant director who knew nothing and literally came in on the first day of rehearsal like it was that's how involved so I can't claim any ownership okay. over it in fairness um, but uh, yeah no absolutely auditions here all the musicians were found here you know there was quite a lot of people working on the show who, who were based in Dublin yeah. But there were a few essential characters that we couldn't find yeah. and therefore they were brought over from London. And the director, Phil Wilmot, um, he, uh, you know, had quite good access to these sort of singers, dancers, choreographers that we needed. But basically, long story short, he brought me back to be his assistant director in London and that's how I ended up in London. <laughs> So I assisted him on two or three other shows in London at the Battersea Arts Centre, musicals. 
How did you find being over in London? It can be an unforgiving town. Very. And I went for three months with no intention of staying. And I found it very, very difficult, actually. And at that point, I hadn't quite committed to not being an actor. So I was kind of very insecure about my position as a director. So I wasn't really pushing myself. I was kind of hiding the fact that I was, you know, doing a bit of acting and a bit of directing. And I spent a few years in total denial. And then eventually, once I embraced that I really wanted to be a director and kind of owned it. And I was nervous about it because I didn't have any training. You know, people in London had been to Oxford and Cambridge or they had been to Goldsmiths or they had done various directing degrees, masters and assisting. And yeah. I hadn't a clue. And I didn't have the knowledge. So I was very, very self-conscious about naming myself as a director and um, that made me quite isolated in London. I found that London very difficult. And also, you know, people did tell me, you haven't a hope of being a director here at the time because you are female Irish. Somebody very well known who I won't mention <laughs> said to me, you're female, you're Irish, you haven't been to Oxford or Cambridge, you'll never be a director. And it was as simple as that. Yeah. Those boxes weren't ticked, so... Yeah, and he actually was trying to help me. He wasn't being a shit. Yeah. He was trying to save me, you know, and and stop me wasting my time. Um, he was wrong. <laughs> this, I, I love this determined streak, though. And as you said, like, yeah. you know, that, that people tried to hold you back in the past, that you went out of your way to make sure that no one would hold anyone else back that you could have... Yeah, well, I you, tried. Yeah, no, but you I know, like That it. was the impulse, but yeah. obviously, it's, you know, it was short-lived. It was only a couple of years, and... It's I'd, got a noble impulse, though. Or stubborn. Yeah, that's okay too, though. Mm. <laughs> um, yeah. When does the connection with the Royal Court start? So, <clears throat> I w- when I started directing, I and I have to say this, the first play I directed was Frank Pig said hello, Says Hello at the Fimbra Theatre. And um, Pat McCabe, I wrote to him and I told him I wanted to direct it and I hadn't been, and he gave me the rights for free. Wow. And I will be eternally grateful because... That went quite well, and every single job I got after that was as a result of that. So I have, I owe him a great debt. And you really feel that was like a case of that first domino knocked over everything oh, that came after? Oh, completely, because I, it, it was weird what happened then. That, that show went quite well. It was tiny, and it was shared a slot, so it was only half a slot. You know, I was in rep, if you like, with somebody yeah. else. But immediately because of that, I was offered three paid directing jobs. Wow. Small, like fringe. Yeah, but still. But, yeah. Which was out of this world, like, I could, you know, you can't imagine. And they were all new writing. And so right from the beginning, I was working on new writing, new plays. And, the, and one of the first was an American play. Um, and it was well an, an American playwright, but he was writing about Mane, the uh, the artist. Oh, and, right. Yeah, and uh, that was also um, performed in London at the New Theatre. New New Oh, what's it called? The New Theatre? No, the New End. The New End in Hampstead. I'm getting confused That's with my right. capital cities. <laughs> um, yeah, so. What happened is I was directing a lot of new writing that maybe wasn't great at the time uh, in my 
naivety I thought I could I need to take a break well it wasn't naive but I was a bit arrogant is the truth of it and I was thinking I should be doing better work and I'm not assisting and I'm not I'm, I'm trying I'm doing these things and I'm not getting any better basically okay so I thought I need to take a break and I became an associate director on the New Statesman for Ambassadors Theatre Group and that was with Rick Mail and that was like a panto that went around Britain. Yeah. And I was doing that and basically that's holding someone else's show and I learned an awful lot about relationships to an audience on that show because this audience adored Rick Mail and he could have done anything. But the skill the man had was phenomenal. And he wasn't so well at that point, he'd had an accident. But he, when he walked on stage, just it took over and he could do anything. And he said, like there was accidents every night, things didn't open, things didn't blow up, you know, and he just handled it all. I never have seen anything like it. He wow. was phenomenal. And I learned an awful lot about a relationship to an audience and the capability of a single performer to hold a space from him and from watching him. But... Again, a bit being a bit arrogant, I was like, this isn't proper theatre. <laughs> so I did a two-week um, training course with Katie Mitchell, the okay. di- a director who I hugely admire. And um, that was um, through a company called Living Pictures. If anybody's interested in directing, they should go and do these short training courses with Living Pictures because Ellen Bowman, who runs it, is like the grandmother of every director that you've ever heard of as Excellent. far as as far as technique and skill goes and it's very Stanislavski based but I remember a few days into the course and I was like talking about um, I was talking about uh, directing about McMail and about the show and I was saying oh but it's not proper theater and she said to me Katrina are you an artist and I said god no I'm a director and she was like, I think you need to think about what you're doing and why. And it was like a slap in the face, I have to say. Because I didn't, I thought that a director was a facilitator rather than a creative okay. entity. And I think that might have been coming from my, my history. Yeah. And I thought, I have to, you know, do something different. And it really woke me up. And then she started introducing me to how you use music and watching film and incorporating different styles of art and looking at Pina Bosch and, you know, different ways of telling the same story. Um, So I took a break and I did a Clore Fellowship. And, well, I I, um, luckily got a Clore Fellowship and... I spent a year at the Royal Court um, as a result of that. Sorry, that was so long-winded. That's quite, that's quite all right, because it's absolutely fascinating. I, I've never come across anyone who had any connection to uh, the Clore Fellowship stuff that didn't say it was a profoundly life-changing, incredible period for them. I, yeah. I, I presume it was the same for you? Exactly the same. Um, when I, at the point when I did the Clore Fellowship, I was directing when I could... I was working at weekends in the Natural History Museum because I had my science and that's how I paid my sure. way. And I and when you do a Clore Fellowship, the idea is that you go into different art forms. And when I did it, I went into, and when I got it, which was a miracle in itself, 
I said to them, look, I do, I've been doing bits and pieces of this and that and the other thing, and I'm the opposite. I need, I need to spend time in one theatre, and I need to spend time in a producing theatre, and I'm really interested in you writing, and I'd love it to be the Royal Court. And they made it happen. And this is the thing about the Clore Fellowship. You can design it to be whatever you want or whatever you need. And, you know, I never had a privilege like that. You know, from suddenly going from, no, you can't, no, you're not right, no, you're wrong, you're this, you're that, to have somebody go, what do you need? Okay, here it is. Wrapped up in a box with a ribbon on top. Yeah. That's phenomenal. Yeah. It is the greatest privilege that I've had. Um, And... I, you know, I don't know, I cannot urge anyone strongly enough to do it if you get the chance. When I did it, it was two, a two-year process. You can do it now in a year, but it is literally life-changing because it's not really about what you do. It's about how you think, and it's about how you think about yourself. And it changed everything about how I thought about myself because it actually makes you admit to yourself who you are warts and all you know you have to look at it because you can't do anything unless you can see that and you know when you spend your life hiding what you want to do you're not very good at being very honest with who you are so it was a it was yeah very much about that and was it from that time that led to you spending time in new york yes i saw jesus hop the a train wow yeah in london and it was in the arts theater and I thought it was the best acting I'd ever seen in my life. And I thought I want to go and work with that company. And at this point, you could do a placement on the Royal, or with the, sorry, with the Clore Fellowship for three months. And I said, oh, I want to go and study this, the way they work in uh, New York, this company. And the reason I wanted to go is I started reading about them. And obviously, and Philip Seymour Hoffman directed the play and he is a massive hero of mine. I think he's the greatest actor of our generation and I think he's an extraordinary artist. And um, he was the artistic director. So at the time I was at the Royal Court and I wrote to them very sneakily using my Royal Court address, which I had about two weeks at the time. Smart. (laughs) Knowing that at least they would take me seriously. It's not awful. Like, that is awful. Here's what you got. Yeah, while you've got it for the brief period. Oh, my God. But anyway, it was funny because... So they did this thing called the Summer Intensive, and the whole company, and there's like... I don't know how many there are now. There could be 120 in the company. And the, as many of them are as available, go to, or at this point, they don't do it quite the same way anymore, but they would go to, um, the first year I went, it was Bennington University campus. We would all live there, and we would work on maybe 40 new plays over three weeks. Okay. This is similar to Ann Bogart and the City Company. They take a place in upstate New York and do a month there with the whole company as well. Is that what they, they do? do? And bring about 40 or 50 international practitioners of directors, designers, actors, writers, and go and spend a month in upstate New York. I was privileged to do that myself, and it was oh. phenomenal. So this sounds it in, must a, in, be a, the in same a similar thing. kind of idea. Yeah, I'd say it's a very similar idea. Yeah. But um, So I wrote and asked them, could I be part of it? And they didn't know me, so they weren't sure. So I had to go over and be interviewed, which was hilarious because I had to be interviewed by three different people. John Ortiz, who was co-artistic director with Phil at the time, 
and um, Florenzia Lorene, Lore, oh no, I can't even say her name, Florenzia, with an actress called Florenzia and the literary person at the time, Andrea Cavani. And um, I literally had to do these three, ma- oh no, it was John Rubin actually who interviewed me. So one person interviewed me at about 10 o'clock at night in a bar. That sounds totally appropriate. <laughs> that seems the, fine. Yeah. The other one in Starbucks in um, somewhere in the middle of New York and the third one at a bus stop. Anyway, the th- between the three of them and these, this mad week of interviews, they agreed that I could come and be part of the intensive. And that's where I met, the first time I met Philip Seymour Hoffman, I met Frank Pugliese, Ed Vassallo, Lucy Thurber, who became somebody I've been working with since, an incredible playwright, um, and the incredible company that is Labyrinth wow. Theatre Company, yeah. And Mimi O'Donnell, who was Phil's partner, who, was, who later became artistic director, and who started off as a costume designer in the company and then became the most incredible dramaturg and then artistic director. So it's, and Stephen Adley Gurgis and John Patrick Shanley and Ethan Hawke and Ellen Bernstein and like. That's, that's a significant lineup of people. Yeah, they, there's, it's a some company, I have to say. When you look back on your time there, do mm. you feel it had, you know, like talking about different experiences along the way, do you feel that that has coloured your approach to the work as well? Yeah. <clears throat> Pardon me. Um, yeah. The thing about Labyrinth and that I fell in love with initially was this acting, this rawness of the acting style that came out of, like, their guts. There's n- they're unapologetic. They're wild. They, they, it's extraordinary, fierce, raw performance there's no barriers so coming at the time from London and the other approach um, which is very intellectual quite cerebral analytical this was like manna from heaven to me (laughs) and um, and now where I sit now today I'm somewhere in between the two but the impact of seeing those people work like do a reading I, you know, you would see, so we would do maybe four plays, we would watch four plays every night or, you know, at least three. So, and they'd be written by maybe a first time uh, writer or they'd be written by Stephen Adley Gurgis. You know, I saw The Motherfucker with the Hat yes. when it was only 10 pages long, wow. things like that. But I'll never forget seeing Philip Seymour Hoffman sit with a script a one-man show I think it was called the transparency of Val an extraordinary thing about a man having his first child and dealing with that and I to the day I die I'll never forget it it was pure beauty just pure exceptional work slow methodical instinctive painful glorious oh it was amazing and so I went back every year for six years. <laughs> Amazing. After that. What still excites you about theatre? Whether that's being in the audience yourself or when it's a, a prospective project that you're looking at. What gets you, what gets you wound up and excited about a show? You know what I have to, th- I think it's, I think it's the possibility of the actors realising something. 
and communicating something that's very true and that maybe we don't want to look at. I love work that shows us things we don't want to look at but makes it possible. And I think that's why Unraftery's Hill was so meaningful for me because that story is, is familiar and ugly and it's very much part of rural life. I knew a lot of people who were in that, not a lot, but I had conversations with two or three people who were in similar situations when I was growing up at home. And I don't think that that's exceptional to any show. Mm. I think that's part of isolated geographical isolation, um, but isolated lives, confusion, uh, some sort of like different kinds of oppression um, and I think that when you get a text and you combine it with an actor or actors a group of actors who are willing to go where that needs to go and not make it alien that's the key for me not to make it alien because every single impulse that we have and every single impulse you see in a play, no matter how ugly or grotesque or brutal or, or beautiful, that's in, that's in every single one of us. That capability or possibility is somewhere in every one of us by virtue of the fact we're human. So not to alienate it or distance from it and, and to find actors who are willing to not do that, that's, that's what makes me go... Yeah, let me in that room. Put me in that room. I don't care what the subject is. Put me in that room with those people. And as you approach the work now, talking about that shift from your viewing of the role of director as facilitator versus now maybe looking at it more as, as an artist, someone more creative and bringing something to it, how do you weave those strands together? How do you as director corral all the various artists into this kind of unifying vision? Or is that something you deem as important? Oh, it's essential. You all have to tell the same story. Yeah. So, um, do you mean what's my practical approach? Yeah, or, or like, are you keen to be working with designers from very early on? How do you bring actors, you know, to, like, as you say, tell the same story that the lighting design is doing? You yeah. Know, or, or that yeah. costume is. I, like, that, I find that fascinating. Um, yeah, I think it's really important that you're working with the designers from the beginning. I've always fantasized about having one of those kind of creative relationships where I make multiple pieces of work with the same designers and for various reasons, mainly because I move around so much it hasn't happened. But I think that's the key. All the relationships are, the, are key, but you have to start those conversations with designers before you hit sit down with the text and with the actors because you need a really solid foundation, I think. Now, in saying that, I am not a dic like very uh, dictatorial. Yeah. Um, I don't say this is what I want. I kind of talk more in textures or ideas or very loosely about the kind of thing I want. And I'm very open to having my mind changed. If somebody has a better idea, I'm very um, interested uh, in like looking at images first, images that maybe are just an impulse. I like the look of this. Like I was sending the designer, I'm talking again about Rafteries because it's the most recent piece of work um, that I've done in a theater, but um, like I was sending her mad images. I'm sure she must have thought I was off my head. Like colors and 
you know, hairs and bits of grass and that kind of thing. So, so for me, I don't, I want the world to have a texture. I, and before I started with the designers, all I knew is I wanted it to feel familiar and I wanted it to feel like it was in a bog hole and the kitchen <laughs> and um, like a hair makes kind of holes in the grass. They don't burrow into holes. So they live in the grass and you can, they're very exposed so you can see in. So I wanted it to be open and you could see and I wanted it to be like a hare's nest. Yeah. Um, and from there, you know, we all worked towards that. And then, you know, each one of them contributed hugely and artistically, like I wasn't at all leading either Paul's lights or the massive structures that Joanne came in. I knew I wanted levels, but certainly not the scale that she yeah. came back to me with. And then in the room, I would sit down for quite a while and we would build the texture of the world through research and fairly traditional methods of breaking it into uh, where there's a shift that affects everyone in the room, you know, basic, um, put in a basic roadmap, I would call it. Yeah. But for me, we need to know where something shifts that affects everybody because we need to know we need all to have the same rough shape of a map to be starting with and then i use a bit of improvisation i try and work without using the actual lines initially so that it's the impulse or the mood or the you know the instinct so yeah. so i feel like everybody is empowered to contribute right from the beginning and I, th I and I would say that you know my collaborators the actors the designers we work with we would agree that they feel very much an ownership of um, the work now of course you have ideas and you're leading in a certain direction or you're you know molding something to go in a certain direction but um, I think it's really important I want the character to come from the actor I don't want the character to play an actor or the sorry I want I want the character to come from who the actor is I don't want the actor to put on an overcoat of a character and become something I have in my head okay and <clears throat> excuse me and I think that's back to that idea that we all have everything inside us in some shape or form um, and voices and accents, and, like I worked with Sue Maiden and mm. Andrea Ainsworth on very, very closely on Raftery's Hill. I feel like it was a total collaboration. I feel like the three of us built that show together and they worked on voices and accents and movement and gave it a whole energy underneath all the lines, underneath what the actors were doing or what I was doing. And, and I think collaborations very very key to me I think that people feeling ownership over their own work is really important I think that's how you get the best work um, but it's definitely not planted or imposed on top of them can I say one more thing oh, go on, of course you can uh, just the the only thing I would say about that is I don't have rules every single production is different depending on what it needs so I'm working on two pints at the moment, yeah. and two pints is two men sitting at at um, at a bar, and I keep thinking if anyone was watching me rehearse this play, they would think I wasn't doing any work, 
because the work is I keep trying to make the two actors have conversations about the past because I feel like they are the characters <laughs> or they have you know so whatever they share yep. between them is real research that's all they need is to know a bit about each other and to have so of course there's some basic work we're doing but because there's no blocking in the traditional sense and all the work is around you know changing rhythms in order to express something on page five that you're hinting at in page two you know that kind of thing other than that kind of text work a lot of the work's chats it's literally having them chat so every depending on what i'm trying to dig out of a piece you know i approach everything completely yeah. differently like it must look i'd say the stage manager thinks that it's just the easiest gig she's ever had lots of chats a lot <laughs> and to, cups of tea and finally i wanted to touch on the idea of making work outside of you know big city centers uh you know having just mm. done the the work around Donegal up the north and stuff and but also it's something that you've done quite a bit of over the years it's something that I'm quite passionate about I was aware you know kind of when we started off with this thing with Rise there was an awful lot of work being made in Dublin 2 by Dublin 2 folk for Dublin 2 folk yeah. which is fine and wonderful and valid in its own way but there's a big bad world there outside of it and so we've been hugely committed to touring as extensively as possible as often as possible and so we do these big you know 25 venue tours all around everywhere and try and take work play, you know things like west of the Shannon as much as we possibly can try and cross border as much as we can try and get down south to kind of those smaller places is that something that's important for you and if so why is it something that's important for you it's hugely important and it's important because you won't have future theatre artists if they're not inspired and you have to see something that you have never thought of and never seen before to know that you can have a go. And how can you see live theatre? You know, you can't even get to the shop. People, like, you know, people are bored with me saying this, but they don't understand. They literally don't understand. When I had the youth theatre in Inishon, we all our money went on a bus. We had a two-hour bus journey that drove around Inishon picking people up because you literally do not have any public transport up there literally none and if you're living uh, up you know three miles up a mountain outside Malin there is no way to get to anywhere unless somebody brings you now or you have a bike but even then you know literally it's really challenging so the challenge is inspiring people like you have to people have to see something in order to lift their spirit and soul and make them think my god that's something that's a way of expressing myself i didn't even know it existed um it's essential we we don't put everything on in london the amount of times somebody in theater here has said to me oh it was exactly the same for me when i was growing up in kilkenny or belfast or you know cork and i have to literally literally bite my tongue because they have no idea I, I mean loads of people have an idea but really and truly like geographical isolation is no joke I was up there for the last six weeks in round in the show in Sligo there's no internet you cannot get a signal on your phone you are completely isolated you miss the lift and you are walking for seven or eight miles in the lashing rain or the or this time, when the sun's splitting the stones. Yeah. But 
you can't do anything if it takes you three hours to walk somewhere for an hour long event and three hours to walk home like the challenges are huge you have to you have to take stuff up there um you know people wonder why there's so many road accidents and car crashes up there because people steal cars to get to the shop (laughs) that's a huge exaggeration but you know what i'm saying like Young fellas sneak out of the house at night and they drive crocks of cars around the place because they have no way to get anywhere. Um, We need to bring work to those people. We need to let those people see that, you know, there's another, there is another way of expressing yourself that you don't know about and it might be with a little wooden boat that's floating down the foil. <laughs> you know what I mean? Absolutely. Does I that do. sound really wanky? No, that sounds absolutely perfect <laughs> and I hope your metaphorical wooden boat continues to flourish <laughs> on many waters all around the world. Katrina McLaughlin, thank you so much for coming on the podcast. That was amazing. So there you have it, the incredible Katrina McLaughlin. I'm just so delighted that we got the chance to have that chat. She's a real inspirational woman and a fantastic theatre artist. And, you know, I'm just so delighted for her that things are on such a roll at the moment. And particularly, obviously, with the Rafferty's Hill thing being such a big kind of phenomenal success for such a short run, because it's testament to the fact that if you trust female playwrights and female directors and put them on the main stages of our national theatre and any theatre if you like around the world that you can create these incredible bits of theatre that audiences will flock to even with a darker subject matter audiences will flock to it and you know you look at someone like Katrina you know she's been doing work on that scale on those big stages around the world for quite some time now you know it's not just that she's done it here in Ireland and all around the island of Ireland it's not just that she's done it uh, in London and all around the UK I mean she's working on these massive stages in America too all the time uh, painted on these big canvases and it's just that thing of it seems that we're still stuck in a place where it still takes a little bit of an extra push to go oh can we really trust this to the girls um you know we're getting there we're improving maybe we're not improving quick enough maybe we're not getting there quick enough but you know katrina is absolutely testament to the fact that you know if you build it they will come um you know she's a phenomenal director and that's just a really inspirational chat for me to have with her just listen to the way she talks about creating the work really just a fantastic experience she's someone i have so much respect for delighted that i got to have her on the podcast and to share that conversation with all of you guys out there and so look that brings us to our usual weekly roundup of the theatrical goings on around the country at the abbey theater it's jimmy's hall featuring the brilliant lisa lamb and also come on home the last few performances of that which has been completely sold out that whole run i am going tomorrow night which i'm very excited about uh, come on home of course written by Philly McMahon at the Gate Theatre it is the Snapper which is doing crazy business for them as well it's lovely to see summer in Dublin it can be tricky to sell theatre tickets I'm delighted to see those shows doing so well at the Gate Theatre it is Riverdance and up at the board gosh it is wicked then at Smock Alley uh, the Rise Productions home for the next year it's Idlewild by Jimmy Murphy presented by Rex Ryan's new company Glass Mask uh, and then also the Shockron has just opened with the great Liam Heslin and a whole host of others there and then and as we go north side to the Viking in Clontarf, it's two by Jim Cartwright. Uh, and at Bewley's Cafe Theatre, it's your last couple of chances to catch uh, Joxer Daily Esquire. That'll be followed by Roman Fever. As we head south to the Rebel County at the Everyman in Cork, it's The Lonesome West, starring Gus McDonough, directed by Julie Kelleher. Uh, out west at Galway's Town Hall, what's going up is What Good Is Looking Well When You're Rotten on the Inside from the brilliant Emma O'Grady, who I was on the next stage with a couple of years when she was actually just trialing 
feeling at the very uh, beginnings of that show when it was just thoughts on a piece of paper. Delighted to see that Emma's got that show to fruition and that it's had such success for her that is definitely worth checking out if you get the chance. And then up north at the Lyric in Belfast, it is a night with George. So look, that is us. That is episode 39 in the books. We will of course be back next week for another chat with one of Ireland's leading theatre makers. But in the meantime, this has been the Rise Productions Irish Theatre Podcast. For Angus Ogmac and Ali, I'm Angus Ogmac and Ali. We'll see you next week. Bye.